What a grisly place Juan has ended up. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of January's book Pedro Paramo. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of Pedro Paramo from page 71 which starts the weather must be changing up there. So Dorotea and Juan chat in the grave. Juan thinks quote my mother lived her childhood and her best years in this town but couldn't even come here to die and so she sent me in her place. So he not only made a promise to find Paramo and make him pay but a huge sacrifice with his life. Will there be a big showdown then between the ghost Pedro and the ghost Juan? Very gripping stuff. It seems to be some strange version of dualism going on here. Their bodies seem to be separate from their souls, but they are also able to consider and talk about their bodies and physical feelings under the earth. Juan says, quote, the weather must be changing up there. Then they discuss their souls. Juan says, quote, and your soul, where do you think it's gone? Dorothea responds with, quote, it's probably wandering like so many others, looking for living people to pray for it. Maybe it hates me for the way I treated it, but I don't worry about that anymore. And now I don't have to listen to its whining about remorse. Because of it, the little I ate turned bitter in my mouth. It haunted my nights with black thoughts of the damned. When I sat down to die, my soul prayed for me to get up and drag on with my life, as if it still expected some miracle to cleanse me of my sins. I didn't even try. This is the end of the road, I told it. I don't have the strength to go on. And I opened my mouth to let it escape. And it went. I knew when I felt the little thread of blood that bound it to my heart drip into my hands. This is a form of dualism that I never really considered before. I always imagined that the body was redundant and unthinking and the soul contains all the thinking and feelings. But here, the body has a very real voice and feelings. Now, Fulgore knocks at a door and the unnamed person inside thinks of how his father was killed. Quote, his father's death came to his mind. It had been an early dawn like this, although that morning the door had been open and he had seen the grey of a dismal ashen sky seeping through, and a woman had been leaning against the door frame, trying to hold back her sobs. A mother he had forgotten, forgotten many times over, was telling him, they've killed your father, in a broken quavering voice, held together only by the thread of her sobs. Now is this poor Toribio, who Pedro Paramo is eager to steal land from? There are those fragments again. Piecing together the narrative is like piecing together ghosts. Now it ends up that it's Pedro hearing of Miguel's accidental death. He thinks, quote, I'm beginning to pay. The sooner I begin, the sooner I'll be through. And then the narrator comments, quote, he felt no sorrow. Now remember that Juan's mother said in the first paragraph, make him pay, son, for all those years he put us out of mind. So there's a question here. What else does Pedro Paramo feel he has to pay for? Are we going to find out if there's anything? Maybe the sins of his father. Maybe for the sins of Miguel. Maybe he feels guilt for abandoning Dolores and Juan. It's doubtful since it was 
Dolores' decision to leave. Now we have a scene with Father Renteria. He's guilty that he let so many be seduced by Pedro Paramo without calling out his behaviour. He remembers giving a child to Pedro whose mother was saying that Pedro was the father and who had died in childbirth. Quote, both of them, Pedro and Father Renteria, drank to the child's future. Now a priest in Contler refuses to give Renteria absolution. Renteria almost accepts this. I think he realises that he's allowed sin to thrive. The Contler priest says, quote, we live in a land in which everything grows thanks to God's providence, but everything that grows is bitter. That is our curse. And then we have a confessional scene where Dorothea confesses to procuring girls for Miguel. He seems to let her off quite lightly though. She doesn't have to pay any penance. And then we move to a first person character who is dead in a coffin. She's thinking of her mother's living arms. And we find out that this is Donna Susanita, Paramo's last wife, on the very next page. This first person point of view is very reminiscent of Juan's first person point of view. Can we assume that his soul may be migrating into the other dead souls, that he's experiencing the deaths of many people? She describes in detail the day her mother died. No one came to the funeral apart from her and her helper, Justina. Dorothea tells him that he was experiencing the soul of Donna Susanita, Paramo's last wife, very close by, whose mother had consumption, which was very contagious. And that is why no one came to Susanita's mother's funeral. Now, Dorothea explains that the corpses begin to stir after time. Quote, they wake up. Juan hears the corpses talk of all the murders that Pedro Paramo has committed. And Dorothea explains, quote, Pedro Paramo slaughtered so many folks after his father was murdered that he killed nearly everyone who attended that Vilmayo wedding. Don Lucas Paramo, that's Pedro's father, was supposed to give the bride away. And it was really by accident that he died because it was the bridegroom someone had a grudge against. And since they never found out who fired the bullet that struck him down, Pedro Paramo wiped out the lot. A dead girl now is heard moaning. It's evidently Susanna, the only true love of Pedro Paramo. Dorothea describes the despair he felt when she died. And then we go back to the past. Susanna is now older and has been married, widow, and she has moved back to Contla with her father, Bartolome, to look after him. He has been forced back due to some kind of trouble at the mines he used to work at. Now, for 30 years, Pedro has been trying to see Susanna again, even tempting Bartolome to go back to Contla with work. Pedro asks his foreman of Media Luna, that's Don Fulgar, to seek them out, and they are located at a mine and he is found, quote, there were reports of armed rebellion. Those were the winds that blew your father back here. I wonder how much those winds were blown by Pedro's doing. Did he stir up the trouble just to get Susanna back? Ultimately, we find out that the mine had problems because of the revolution that was going on. Now, Pedro is ecstatic she's returning with her father. Quote, I felt that the heavens were parting. I wanted to run to meet you, to envelop you with happiness, to weep with joy, and weep I did, Susanna, when I learned that at last you would return. Now, when Bartolome offers Pedro the mines he was working at in payment, Pedro responds with, quote, I'm not interested in your mine, Bolotomeo, San Juan. The only thing of yours I want is your daughter. She's your crowning achievement. Bartolome warns Susanna that Pedro, quote, is married, has had more women than she can count, and is unmitigated evil. Susanna appears to be willing to sleep with Pedro, either 
One, she still loves him, or two, possibly to protect her father in some way. She also possibly plans to deny him as her father, perhaps to free him in order to save his life. Perhaps he's genuinely not her father. So we've got a question there. Is Susanna Don Bartolomeo's daughter? Now, Pedro plots to kill her father in the mines. He says to his foreman, Fulga, quote, You know, of course, she is the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. I had come to believe I had lost her forever. I don't want to lose her again. You understand me, Fulga? You tell her father to go explore his mines. And there, I imagine it wouldn't be too hard for an old man to disappear in a territory where no one ever ventures. Don't you agree? She must be left without family. We're called on to look after those in need. I'm seeing a really awful side to this Pedro Paramo character. Now, rain falls, and rain seems to really punctuate the past, like the floods in the Bible. Sin, perhaps, is about to be washed away. Will there be some retribution? More on that later. Susanna is at Midia Luna now. Susanna is ill. Someone asks Susanna's helper, Justina, to leave quietly, leave for good, and she screams out. Then we have a little history of Justina, how she looked after Susanita as a baby, and how she's looking after Susanita now she is ill. Susanita hears a scream, but it's not Justina. Now, the scream Susanna heard was the scream of her father dying the night before. She must have heard him as a ghost since she was dreaming. There's a horrific scene where Susanna recalls how, when she was young, she was asked to search for gold in her father's mine. Bartolome doesn't come across well. Quote, Climb down, Susanna, and tell me what you see, says Bartolome to poor little Susanna. She was dangling from a rope that cut into her waist and rubbed her hands raw, but she didn't want to let go. That rope was the single thread connecting her to the outside world. I don't see anything, Papa. Look hard, Susanna. See if you don't see something. And he shone the lamp on her. I don't see anything, Papa. I'll lower you a little farther. Let me know when you're on the bottom. She had entered through a small opening in some boards. She'd walked over rotted, decaying, splintered planks, covered with clay soil. Go a little lower, Susanna, and you'll find what I told you. She bumped lower and lower, swaying in the darkness with her feet swinging in empty space. Lower, Susanna, a little lower. Tell me if you see anything. And when she felt the ground beneath her feet, she stood there, dumb with fear. The lamplight circled above her and then focused on a spot beside her. The yell from above made her shiver. Hand me that, Susanna. She picked up the skull in both hands, but when the light struck it fully, she dropped it. It's a dead man's skull, she said. You should find something else there beside it. Hand me whatever's there. The skeleton broke into individual bones. The jawbone fell away as if it was sugar. She handed it up to him piece after piece down to the toes, which she handed him joint by joint. The skull had been first, the round ball that had disintegrated in her hands. Keep looking, Susanna, for money, round gold coins. Look everywhere, Susanna. And then she did not remember anything until days later she came to in the ice, in the ice of her father's glare. It's really like descending into hell with poor Susanna, just as Juan has descended into hell along the road to Kamala, Poor Susanna having to scurry around in a disused mine for her father. Now, whose money was Susanita looking for and whose was the skull? Will we ever find out? Perhaps Bartolomeo is not so innocent. Now, Father Renteria comes to Susanna to tell her that a man named Florencio is dead. But Susanna already senses the ghost of Florencio in the room with her. Now, who is Florencio? Is he a lover? Is he a husband? We actually learn later on that Florencio 
is indeed Susanna's late husband. And did Pedro Parama kill him? And was he seen as a, some kind of rival? Fragments, again, these ghostly liminal fragments. A man called El Tartamundo visits Pedro Paramo to tell him that, quote, revolutionaries who want your land have killed Don Fulgar in the back. He died with one foot in the air and one on the ground. Now Pedro asked Tartamundo to ride by La Consagración Ranch and fetch an El Tilcuate and to tell the revolutionaries that they can come to his ranch. It's interesting how Tartamundo has never met Pedro Paramo before because being bossed around. Now, will Tartamundo do Pedro's bidding? Well, ultimately he does. Now, after he leaves, Pedro thinks, quote, those dumb men have never run into a burr constrictor like El Tilcuate. Pedro has basically incarcerated Susanna. He watches her at night in agitation as she, quote, tugs at her pillow until it's in shreds. He thinks, how long will it go on? There is no memory, however intense, that does not fade. So we've got an answer there in part. Pedro doesn't seem to know what's tormenting her. So my initial thought that he killed Florencio are definitely unfounded. I mean, it's not like she would mention a lover to a brute like Paramo anyway, I don't think. We hear Susanna speaking from beyond the grave and Juan desperately listening. She recalls how she swam with Pedro and how she would return to swim on her own since he says, quote, I like you better at night when we're lying in the same pillow beneath the same sheets in the darkness. He wants her to be his whole world, her whole universe, but she wants more and returns to the sea. Quote, the sea bathes my ankles and retreats. It bathes my knees, my thighs. It puts its gentle arm around my waist, circles my breasts, embraces my throat, presses my shoulders, and I sink into my whole body. I give myself to its pulsing strength, to its gentle possession, holding nothing back. I love to swim in the sea, I told him, but he didn't understand. He really doesn't understand her love of the sea, how it makes her feel at one with the universe. He wants to reduce the size of her world. He wants her world to be just the bedroom for him. Do you agree? Now, we move to the meeting between Pedro Tilcuate, Pedro's henchman or boa constrictor, and the revolutionaries who want Pedro's land. Pedro agrees to lend them 100 men and 300 men, quote, within a week for their cause. Their rebellion against the government and plan to kill the governor. Yeah, whatever, they're dead men, I'm thinking. Pedro's going to butch them, right? Maybe not, but certainly they don't want his land anymore. Pedro persuades Tilcuate to lead the revolution by finding 300 men and giving each man 10 pesos. Quote, it's not a good idea to haul so much money around. In exchange for doing this, Pedro offers him a ranch. So this is how men like Pedro gain power. Then we move to a scene where dead Susanna is speaking to Juan, recalling sleeping in loving bliss next to someone, possibly Florencio. She also recalls the pain of someone's death. Again, this could be Florencio. Then we move back to Comala. Pedro is watching over Susanna as she dreams of her poor dead Florencio, whom she was so much in love. Someone in the dream says, quote, Florencia is dead, senora. A ghost is speaking uh, because when she wakes, Father Rentera confirms it. Quote, oh God, you are not in your heaven. I asked you to protect him, to look after him. I asked that of you, but all you care about is souls. And what I want is his body, naked and hot with love. It's interesting, this idea of a God thoughtless of the body, only interested in the souls of the people. 
Now, Gerardo, Pedro's lawyer, says that Tilcoate was killed. The lawyer says he's leaving Pedro's papers behind and moving to Sayula. He expected a big reward for his service to both him, his father and son, which will aid the move, but Pedro gives him nothing. Of his papers, Pedro says, quote, Leave them here, I'll burn them, with papers or without them, who's going to argue with me over my property? A very confident Paramo. I half expected Gerardo to get shot in the back on his leaving, but I guess Paramo knows that lawyers in this world are powerful people. Or has he another plan for him? Now, on the very next page, Gerardo returns saying it was a mistake. He's a corrupt lawyer and has saved Miguel from all sorts of punishments. And that he is going to remain his lawyer and could he have some money? Quote, expenses and advance on my fees to help him with his move. I don't think Gerardo is long for this mortal world. Now we move to Damiana's consciousness. Now she's the head servant of Media Luna. She recalls being a servant and watching as the light from one of the Media Luna's girls' room lands on a band of men. She thinks, quote, those things have nothing to do with me. Damasio returns to Pedro, making more monetary demands for the revolutionaries. And Pedro says, quote, I've told you before, we need to be on the side of whoever's winning. He tells him to rough up the rich men in Contla and the centavos will flow. The chapter closes with Pedro Paramo pining for Susanna. And then we have Susanna and Justina discussing death. Father Interia comes to give communion. Paramo is with him. She's writhing in agonies of despair and mutters Florencio's name. Two old women spy Dr. Valencia going to Media Luna to treat Susanna. And then we have the death of Susanita. Father Renteria tries to give her the last rites, but she refuses. Quote, God sheltered me in his arms and he gave me love. Go away, Father. Don't bother yourself over me. I'm at peace and very sleepy. There's a period of mourning. The bells in Contla ring and Pedro Prama is devastated. We learn that Renterio is fighting with, quote, the revolutionaries. And we learn of the death of Abandio's wife, Refugio. Now, remember, Abandio was the first ghost that Juan met on his way down his Contla. He's the son of Pedro Paramo. He goes into a shop to buy drink. And it's quite interesting that the woman selling him drink is only concerned for her own soul. She says, quote, Tell her, that's his dead wife, to pray to God for me. The poor man's wife has only just died and he's given all these instructions to whisper into her dead ear. Quote, tell her before she gets cold. It really is a bit much, I think. Now he goes to his father, Pedro Parama, for some money to help bury his wife. And he ends up stabbing him in his drunken stupor. Quote, Pedro Paramo fell to the ground with a thud and lay there collapsed like a pile of rocks. Now, Pedro in Spanish actually means rock. Bandio has killed his father and so the novel ends. First impressions, a very dark and gory novel suffused with a religious angst. I like how the narrator melds halfway through the novel with the minds of the dead people of Comala. He never really does get retribution for his father, but we do see it come to Pedro Paramo in the end. He does get his comeuppance. I would probably give the novel four stars. I did like it. I didn't absolutely love it. There were some very, very interesting questions. A few unanswered questions. Is Susanna Bartolomé's daughter? Well, yeah, I think she is Bartolomé's daughter because she denied him, but I think she was denying him maybe to try and save his life in some way. What do you think? And then the money that Susanita was looking for, 
down the mine and whose was the skull i think that was just unfortunately some poor workers and maybe bartolome had stored some money down there he was desperately trying to get some money together to make that move who is florencio clearly i think the husband Pedro doesn't seem to know what's tormenting her so my initial thoughts that he killed Florencio were unfounded I mean it wasn't likely that she would mention a lover or a husband like Florencio to Paramo and I think it does mention they were on their own Bartolome and Susanita I think we can safely assume that this was her first husband although I've checked through the text I can't find a specific place where it states this but it's kind of to be assumed I don't think he would have been just a lover now there was a question about will Tartamundo do Pedro's bidding and inform Tilcoate? Well, I definitely believe he did. Overall thoughts, I would probably recommend this book to someone who's very interested in um, South American writing. See this interesting uh, side of religion, the interplay between religious fervor and an afterlife. And certainly we see a lot of purgatory and ghosts coming to life. There were some very interesting ideas in the second half, continuing on the themes and ideas from the first half. We had this idea of dualism. Under the grave, the bodies of Juan and Dorotea have thoughts and feelings, which I think is quite interesting. They imagine that their souls have departed and are wandering the land. They're truly split personalities. As I previously said, this is a form of dualism that I never really considered before. I always imagined that the body was redundant and unthinking and the soul contains all the thinking and feelings. But here, the body has a very real voice and feelings. We also have this idea of fragments that are continuing on. The knock at the door from Fulgar initially, who's inside? We don't know. We're eager to find out, to piece together the narrative in our minds, a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. There's so many jigsaw puzzles, so many going back and forward in time and going into different people's heads. Like, as I said in the previous podcast, the liminal outline of a ghost. Form definitely follows function in this novel. Now, it turns out to be Pedro Parama hearing of his son Miguel's death falling from a horse. There's that chilling metaphor. Pedro Parama thinks his father's death as if a bulging sack of grain had burst and he was trying to keep the kernels from spilling out. And he says that, quote, death drags other deaths with it. I have this image of spilling internal organs or the idea of a sack of death spilling and turning into an outflow of death, which it really does. Shooting stars appear throughout the novel quite a lot. It's quite interesting, the symbolism in Mexican folklore for shooting stars. Quote, they fell as if the sky were raining fire. Look at that, said Terencio. Please look at the show they're putting on up there. Must be celebrating Miguelito's arrival, Jesus put in. You don't think it's a bad omen? Bad for who? Maybe your sister's lonesome and wants him back. And then we have another quotation about shooting stars. Shooting stars, one by one, the lights in Comilla went out. Then the sky took over the night. Father Renteria tossed and turned in his bed, unable to sleep. He went outside and looked at the sky. It was raining stars. He was sorry because he would rather have seen a tranquil sky. He heard roosters crowing. He felt the mantle of night covering the earth, the earth, this veil of tears. We have another quote about shooting stars from Renteria. Quote, he walked as far as the river where he stood gazing at how stars falling from heaven reflected in the quiet eddies. There is this connection between these stars and maybe falling angels or something spiritual something heavenly and talking of the river there's more mention of this river does it act like 
life-giving blood to Renteria. He's often pondered its colour and seen reflections in it. Renteria thinks about the river after he delivers that child. The lady thinks was Pedro Paramos. He says that the river was, quote, glowing with luminous colour. Maybe that's the, the blood of life, perhaps, as he's holding this baby, thinking about the blood and the blood of life. Following on from the theme of heat that we have at the beginning and this idea of the, the Juan descending into hell almost, Conley is described by Pedro to Susanna like a volcanic hell where nothing grows. Quote, you used to be able to watch things being born, clouds and birds and moss. Here there's nothing but that sour yellowish odour that seems to seep up from the ground. This town is cursed, suffocated in misfortune. It's almost like volcanic sulfuric brimstone. Very hellish. Talking of more biblical references, the idea of a flood. We have rain that punctuates the past. Present day, Contla is a hot hell, but in the past we've got maybe the idea of the storm and the flood. It reminds me of the biblical Noah's Ark and the flood story and how the sins were washed away by the water. Quote, it is rare in these lands to know only downpours. It is Sunday. The Indians have come down from Apango with their rosaries of chamomile, their rosemary, their bunches of thyme. They've come without a coat pine because the wood is wet and without oak mulch because it too is wet from the long rain. They spread their herbs on the ground beneath the arches of the arcade and wait. The rain falls steadily, stippling the puddles. Rivers of water course among the furrows where the young maize is sprouting. The men have not come to the market today. They are busy breaching the rows, so the water will find new channels and not carry off the young crop. They move in groups, navigating the flooded fields beneath the rain, breaking up soft clumps of soil with their spades, firming the shoots with their hands, trying to protect them so they will grow strong. And on the next page, quote, the drain pipes gurgled and foamed, wary of labouring day and night. Day and night, water kept pouring down, streaming and diluvial burbling. Now, will this diluvial burbling clean out Contla for good? The idea of death and the expanding consciousness is a very interesting one in the book. Death expands Juan's consciousness. The narrator, taking on the role of dead Juan, leads us into the many lives of the inhabitants of Contla. There is a oneness in this experience, as if death is a route to a combined universal consciousness. Do you see that? That during life we slowly become detached from the world into our individual selves and that perhaps death provides a return to a collective universal consciousness, connecting everything, the stars, the ghosts, the loved ones. Am I going a bit too far with that idea? We do see a borderline between life and death in this novel. I think the implied author makes out that there's a very thin line. Pedro Pramo comments on Don Folga's death in the following way, quote, He lost no time worrying about Folga, who'd been, after all, more of the next world than this. There's a very thin line. And when he sees Susanna distraught at the loss of Florencio, the narrator comments, quote, What world was Susanna San Juan living in? That was one of the things Pedro Pramo would never know. Again, he sees her almost straddling two worlds, I think. And then, as if to lead us into the ghostly world of Susanna's thoughts, we fast forward to Dorothea and Juan under the ground, listening to Susanna, recounting her thoughts aloud. Susanita, Susanna, thinks aloud, quote, 
The warm sand felt so good against my body. My eyes were closed, my arms flung wide, and my legs opened to the sea breeze from the sea. The sea there before me stretching towards the horizon, leaving its foam on my feet as the waves washed in. And Dorothea says to Juan, Now that's her talking, Juan Preciado. Don't forget to tell me what she says. By merging past and present together, I think the implied author really does thin the line between life and death. It's a world populated by the living dead and the dead who are still living. And I think that her on that beach, Susanna, um, she's experienced the beach and then the, the water going over. Again, you could almost see the comparison between life and death. Water is like death and the beach is like life. And there is that mingling of the two things, I think. Now, in the very, very first page, Dolores says, quote, make him pay, son, for all those years he put us out of mind. Now, all the way through the book, Pedro Paramo acts as an individual selfish person during his life and causing poverty and death in Media Luna when Susanna dies and he closes down Media Luna. But now, with the deaths in this book, minds lose their individuality. They become melded with the other minds. Characters can hear the thoughts of others. Now, Juan's mind seems to be melded with all these other minds. And in the very few final paragraphs, the desire to keep others out of mind is lost to Pedro Parama as he states, quote, I know that within a few hours, Abundio will come with his bloody hands to ask for the help I refused him, but I won't have hands to cover my eyes to block him out. Like he was able to when he was alive. He goes on, I will have to hear him listen until his voice fades with the day until his voice dies. He really is going to have to pay for all those times he put us out of mind. We have the continuing idea of religion and the fear of damnation in the book. The two women, Angelus and Fausta, spy Father and Terry going to Media Luna and think whether Susanna is getting the last rites. Quote, without the last rites, she would suffer forever in the next life. Although the psychics always say that crazy people don't need to confess, that even if they have sin in their soul, they are innocents. God only knows. There is that real fear of the afterlife and burning in hell forever and also there's I remember at the end of the book there's this glimpse that the women put into each other's minds that Susanna if she has sinned she might see a glimpse of God just to see how good things could have been and then she's going to have this internal damnation and fire they talk about how the blood runs with fire and the muscles are like coals. Um, it's, it's a very scary part of the book. Now, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the author. Um, this is from Wikipedia. Juan Rulfo dates from 1917 to 1986. He was a Mexican writer, a screenwriter and photographer. Rulfo was born in 1917 in Apalco, Jalisco, although he was registered at Sayula in the home of his paternal grandfather. Rulfo's birth year was often listed as 1918 because he had provided an inaccurate date to get into the military academy that his uncle David Perez Rulfo, a colonel working for the government, directed. After his father was killed in 1923 and his mother died in 1927, Rulfo's grandmother raised him in Guadalajara, their extended family consisted of landowners whose fortunes were ruined by the Mexican Revolution and the Cristero War of 1926-1928. A Roman Catholic revolted against the persecutions of Christians by the Mexican government following the Mexican Revolution. 
Rolfo was sent to study in the Louis Silver School, where he lived from 1928 to 1932. He completed six years of elementary school and a special seventh year from which he graduated as a bookkeeper, though he never practiced that profession. It was at university that Rulfo first began writing under the tutelage of a co-worker. In 1944, Rulfo had co-founded the literary journal Pan. Later, he was able to advance in his career and travel throughout Mexico as an immigration agent. In 1946, he started as a foreman for Gudrich Oizcadi, but his mild temperament led him to prefer working as a wholesale travelling sales agent. This obligated him to travel throughout all of southern Mexico until he was fired in 1952 for asking for a radio for his company car. Rulfo obtained a fellowship at the Centro Mexicano de Escritore, supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. There, between 1952 and 1954, he was able to write two books. The first was a collection of harshly realistic short stories. The stories centred on life in rural Mexico around the time of the Mexican Revolution and the Cristero War. Among the best-known stories are Tell Them Not to Kill Me. The second book was Pedro Paramo, a short novel about a man named Juan Preciado who travels to his recently deceased mother's hometown, Comala, to find his father, only to come across a literal ghost town populated, that is, by spectral figures. Initially, the novel met with cool critical reception and sold only 2,000 copies during the first four years. Later, however, the book became highly acclaimed. Paramo was a key influence for Latin American writers such as Gabriel García Márquez, Pedro Paramo has been translated into more than 30 languages and the English version has sold more than a million copies in the United States. The book went through several changes in name. In two letters written in 1947 to his fiancée Clara Aparicio, he refers to the novel he was writing as Una Estrella, Yonto, a la Luna, a star next to the moon, saying that it was causing him some trouble. During the last stages of writing, he wrote in journals that the title would be Los Murmulos, The Murmurs. With the assistance of a grant from the Centro Mexicano de Escritore, Rulfo was able to finish the book between 1953 and 1954. It was published in 1955. In passages of the novel, Pedro Paramo, the influence of American novelist William Faulkner, is notorious, according to Rulfo's former friend, philologist Antonio Alatore. I'd like to talk a little bit now about February's book, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It's 143 pages. It's published in 1953. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 72, which begins, The Shop Was Quiet. So I'm going to read out the first opening page. As usual, at five o'clock that morning, Reveil was sounded by the blows of a hammer on a length of rail hanging up near the staff quarters. The intermittent sound barely penetrated the window panes on which the frost lay two fingers thick, and they ended almost as soon as they'd begun. It was cold outside, and the camp guard was reluctant to go on beating out the reveil for long. The clanging ceased, but everything outside still looked like the middle of the night when Ivan Denisovich Shukov got up to go to the bucket. It was pitch dark except for the yellow light cast on the window by three lamps, two in the outer zone, one inside the camp itself. And no one came to unbolt the barrack hut door. There was no sound of the barrack orderlies pushing a pole into place to lift the barrel of night sword and carry it out. Shukov never overslept Reval. He always got up at once, for the next 90 minutes, until they assembled for work, belonged to him, not to the authorities, and any old-timer could always earn a bit by sewing a pair of overmittens for someone out of old sleeve lining or bringing some rich lag in the team, his driver Lenki, their knee-length felt boots for winter wear. 
right up to his bunk so that he wouldn't have to stumble barefoot round the heaps of boots looking for his own pair or going the rounds of the store huts offering to be of service, sweeping up this or fetching that or going to the mess hall to collect bowls from the tables and bring them stacked to the dishwashers. You're sure to be given something to eat there, though there were plenty of others at that game. More than plenty, and what's worse, if you found a bowl with something left in it, you could hardly resist licking it out. But Shukov had never forgotten the words of his first team leader, Kuzyamin, a hard-bitten prisoner who had already been in for 12 years by 1943, who told the newcomers just in from the front as they sat beside a fire in a desolate cutting in the forest. Here, lads, we live by the law of the tiger, but even here people manage to live. Do you know who are the ones the camps finish off? Those who lick other men's leftovers, those who set store by the doctors, and those who peach on their mates. What a horrifying, scary, cold opening to this novel. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them, so leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Thanks very much. I look forward to discussing the first half of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of February. That's the 10th. See you then. Mm-hmm.